Last week in our series, we learned how Jesus ran to God in one of his darkest moments as a, as a spiritual daddy, as a heavenly father, even though he felt completely abandoned and betrayed by those closest to him, his circumstances drove him into the arms of a loving God who welcomed him and cared for him even in the midst of one of his darkest nights. And see, what we're learning in our series that we're calling Hope Rising is that we all, too, have a heavenly Father who knows us and who loves us and wants to walk with us even through some of our lives' most difficult times. The challenge really is whether we will allow our circumstances to drive us to God or will they drive us away from God. Now, we know as earthly parents that even though we do the best that we can to love and care for our kids, we are not perfect, right? And our kids learn very quickly and early how to manipulate the system, how to push our buttons. Unfortunately, though, it's not just kids who are really good at doing that with their parents. We are all pretty good at pushing each other's buttons, right? Especially when we start to get emotionally charged or upset by a situation. If we feel like somebody has done something wrong to us and we feel this righteous indignation rise up in us, we try and make our case and to prove our point and to, to make sure that we are right. And in the process, we can find ourselves making some, some pretty unfair statements about one another. Have you ever found yourself in your marriage or with your kids or, or with somebody that you're upset with uttering one of these infamous relationship phrases, you always do that. No? You never do that. Now, these are not really fair truth claims, are they? I mean, nobody always does something. Nobody never does something in our relationships. But if you think about it, on the other hand, how do you react when somebody says something unfair or untrue about you? It's not just parents and kids who treat one another unfairly in this world. In fact, there are many, many injustices that occur and are currently happening in our world and around the globe. And our injustices in our own lives may, may pale in comparison to what injustices some people are experiencing and living through right now while we worship here in this room. One of the key truths that we've been focusing on in this series is that, is that core life truth that we, we often ignore, but that we all know is true, and that is that life is hard, right? Life is difficult, and oftentimes we also find that life is not fair, and people are often not fair to one another. So the question, when, when life is unfair, when people treat you poorly, when, when somebody says something falsely about you or, or makes some unfair claim about you, how do you react? Let's say somebody double crosses you or cheats you. What do you do? Maybe someone lies about you or posts something false about you online and your reputation is damaged. I mean, nobody ever does that online, do they? 
Your boss chews you out for something you know you didn't do. What's your typical response? I mean, let's think of the range of, of responses that many of us have. Do you retreat into depression? Are, are, are you often like me where I'll, I'll relive the experience over and over again in my own head? Say, oh, I should have said that or I could have done that. No, oh, they were so wrong to do that. But I just kind of stuff it all inside and just kind of wrestle with it in my own self. Or, or maybe you tend to be more of an extroverted responder and you say, I, I'm going to look for a way to get even. I'm going to get back at them. Maybe you cheat the next guy down the line because you conclude that, hey, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there and do unto others before they do unto you. Right? Or do you become so cynical about the world that you no longer even enjoy life and pursue healthy relationships because you've allowed what the Bible calls kind of a root of bitterness to take root in your heart and in your life and you just don't even really trust people anymore. You see, the problem is that all of these responses are far too common for each of us in our human experience and they're far too common for Christian people in Christian churches every day. And the injustices done in this world can cause us to react with greater injustice towards others around us. And it becomes a vicious cycle of pain and frustration. And, and, and so what do we do? How do we respond in a world that is hard and is unfair and is filled with injustice for ourselves and for others? The Bible tells us that we have a God who will help us in our times of trouble. Psalm 46.1 tells us God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. More than that, we also recognize that because Jesus willingly suffered the betrayal and the abandonment, false accusations, and the brutal treatment of the people that he loved the most, he knows and understands the pain and suffering that we experience and go through in our own lives in our own relationships. Because he gave his life to open the way back to a God who loves us and wants to be a spiritual father for us, Jesus is able to meet us in the midst of our deepest fears and our greatest sufferings and to help us as no one else can. That's why Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 reminds us that since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus has become our high priest. He, he is the mediator between us and God. He has become our bridge to, to God as a heavenly father who becomes our ever-present help in time of trouble. Even when life leaves us feeling lost and confused, betrayed and abandoned, unjustly treated and brokenhearted, there is a beacon in the storm. There's a light to lead the way. There is help in times of trouble. The risk is always that when life gets hard and when people treat us unfairly, we are tempted to doubt God. We are tempted to what the Bible calls the sin of unbelief. 
And again, the question for us this morning is whether in the midst of our life circumstances and challenges, will they cause us to run into the arms of a God who knows us and loves us and can help us? Or do we run away from God thinking we can handle it and manage our own lives ourselves? We're going to enter into the story again with Jesus in Mark chapter 14. So if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your device, we also have the YouVersion events where you can read scriptures and take notes online. But before we do that, uh, just, I want to invite you to pray with me and ask God to reveal to each of us this morning that special word that he has for you or for me that we can take away today as we go about our lives as Jesus disciples. Would you pray with me? God, we know that this life is unfair. And we know that relationships are hard. And we know that we often give as well as we get. And we need your help this morning. God, speak to us through your word and remind us of the example of Jesus, whose life was given on behalf of each one of us so that we could experience the joy and the power of your spirit to transform our lives from the inside out so that we too can become more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to read along in my original flat screen Bible here. We'll also have the words on the screen. We're going to be reading chapter 14, beginning in verse 53 through 65. Now we know that Jesus had been abandoned in the middle of the night. All of his friends ran away. He'd been arrested by a a band of armed men. And they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, ran into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling council, all of these people coming together, formed this Sanhedrin council, and they were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. In several other the Gospels, they have this scene where uh, they blindfolded Jesus, and it's like uh, pin the tail on the donkey, right? They spin him around, and they're all slugging him and saying, prophesy, tell us who's hitting you. Wow. How fair is that? The proceedings during this trial 
were according to law at the time illegal in themselves. This Sanhedrin, this ruling council, wasn't permitted to bring charges against somebody. They were supposed to investigate charges from someone else. And, and here they charge them with, with three or four different things, and none of the, nobody's testimony agrees. And, and according to Hebraic law, you had to have more than one witness, and all of the testimonies had to agree in order for them to convict. And, and so first they, they accuse him of threatening to destroy the temple. Right? And how blasphemous is that, that you can destroy God's holy temple? Uh, and then they accuse him uh, of claiming he's the Messiah, this apocalyptic vision of sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds was a sign of the God as being the judge of humankind. Oh, blasphemous. And then, you, you know, later in the story, they can't actually execute him because they're under Roman rule, so they have to take him to Pilate to actually get the, the uh, sentence of execution, right? And there... Neither of those charges are what they charge him with. Now they accuse him of claiming he's the king of the Jews. So which is it? See, they knew that Jesus had done nothing that was worthy of a death sentence, but they were willing to fabricate evidence if necessary in order to secure a guilty verdict. These members of the the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day ignored the truth about who Jesus was and what he claimed, and they made up their own facts about him in order to just get rid of him. In spite of all that they had seen and heard, they rejected the possibility even that Jesus was the Messiah. And in fulfillment of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah, they spit on him and they beat him and they covered his face with with a garment and and, and hit him and accused him of, of being a false prophet. And all the while, he remained silent and just took it. By ridiculing Jesus' status as a prophet, they condemned him as a false prophet. And of course, when Jesus was talking about tearing down the temple, he wasn't talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about the physical temple of his own body that was going to be destroyed on the cross and buried in a tomb, but on the third day would be raised to newness of life. Therefore, he would be the righteous judge who would stand at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and come to judge the quick and the dead on the clouds with God's spirit. Isn't it an irony that in the minds of his accusers, he had uttered a blasphemy when all the while he was simply speaking the truth? What does that mean for us? When we experience injustice and unfair treatment, how do we respond? How do we react? Notice I didn't say if we experience injustice and unfair treatment. When we do, because we know it's going to come. We know that even in our own intimate relationships as family, we struggle with this very issue. I'd like to suggest two things for us this morning that can guide our hearts and our minds to learn from Jesus' example and from God's word. And the first one is that what happens in you is more important than what happens to you. What happens in you is more important than what happens to you. See, we can't control somebody else's behavior. We can't manufacture healthy relationships all around us so that nobody's ever going to mistreat us or do us wrong. There's no way we can control life in this world at that way. We can't undo moments of pain and suffering that have been caused in our past. 
Maybe we can work to prevent it next time, but, but once it's happened, it's now part of our story. We can't erase it. There's no do-overs. There's no take-backs. It, 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 it's, it's what it is. And the challenge is that if we keep reliving that, that painful moment and we devote endless hours of reliving the courtroom scene in our mind, passing a guilty verdict on our abusers, on our betrayers, on those who have treated us wrong, we spend all of our time and energy focusing on the pain and the drudgery of our life in this world and we miss the gift of God for forgiveness and grace and love that allows us to overcome our brokenness and our suffering in this world. See, even though we know the verdict is guilty and we know that this world is broken and filled with evil, there's often no way that we in our own strength can bring about justice in our lives because of the brokenness of the world we live in. Our best and sometimes only recourse is to ask the Lord to change our hearts in the process so that this evil that was done against us that was meant for our ill can be turned by God's power for our good and for his glory. Do you believe God can do that for you? I do. See, the Bible says it this way. We need to guard our hearts against bitterness. You may have heard the story of the doctor uh, that told the man that he had rabies. And upon hearing the diagnosis, the man grabbed a pen and paper and he started writing furiously. And the guy, the doctor's thinking, oh my gosh, this guy thinks that rabies is fatal and he's going to die. He's like, probably like updating his will or something. So he says to the man, hey, hey, calm down. What, what are you doing? Writing your will? He says, no, I'm making a list of all the people I'm going to bite. <laughs> Sadly, though, isn't that how some people handle injustice? They're so bitter that they, they end up just biting everyone around them because, because it's better to do unto others before they do unto you. And we've talked about this here at Faith Covenant Church before, but there's a reality that wounded people wound people. But healed people heal people. The challenge is when life gets hard and, and treats us unfair and we have negative experiences, are we going to grow better or are we going to grow bitter? Because every negative experience in your life is an opportunity to allow God to teach you about his love and his heart and his ability to restore goodness in your life. The, the, the challenge is, or is it going to be an opportunity to grow better or are you going to grow bitter? Because in order to grow better and not bitter, we have to recognize the second point that I want to make this morning is that what you do is often more important than what you feel. What you do is more important than what you feel. See, Jesus challenges our thinking in this regard over and over again, and we don't have time to go through all the scripture passages, but it would be a fun uh, uh, lesson to do sometime. But just one example, Matthew 5, 44, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Nobody tells you to do that. That's, that's craziness, Jesus. What are you talking about? Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? See, the difficult part in understanding what Jesus is challenging us to experience is our feelings. It's our feelings that get in the way. 
See, every feeling in your body, if somebody asks you to love your enemy and bless or pray for somebody who's persecuting you, is going to scream out, no way. That's the last thing I want to do. But see, this then becomes the crossroads of our faith. It becomes the place where the rubber meets the road in our own personal lives. Will we strive to do what God has told us and revealed what is right, even when our feelings are against it? Will we get on our knees and pray for that person whose carelessness or neglect caused us so much pain? Will we go down to the store and buy a card and a gift and send it to that person who we know probably hates us and and has never said a kind word to us, but hey, we're going to just try and bless them anyway. Will we choose to, to say something that blesses somebody who's just said something unfair about us rather than cursing them under our breath or maybe even to their face? But see, doing the right thing isn't always the thing that makes us feel good in the moment. What we learn from Jesus and what we see in the story of his sacrifice and his death and ultimately his resurrection is that actions lead, feelings follow. Actions lead, feelings follow. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us that fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, now, let's pause there for a minute and think about what he's saying. The joy set before him endured the cross. When did the joy come? We, we talked about this last week, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of the night, God is praying, Holy Father, Daddy, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. Jesus didn't go skipping to the cross, throwing rose petals everywhere, saying, Oh, joy, I get to die. For the joy Set before him, he endured the cross. See, where where did the good feelings come for Jesus? They came after the cross. They came after the pain. They came after the suffering. Jesus willingly chose to go through the darkest, most painful experience of his life because he knew on the backside of the pain, trusting in God's word, there was going to be joy because he was going to save the whole world. In the same way, the good results that come from our choosing to do the right thing, even when everything in our body screams, no, I don't want to do it, is what leads us to experience the joy of God's truth in our lives. How about you this morning? In your relationships, in your experiences, are you currently returning good for evil? Or are you returning evil for evil? Are you turning the other cheek when it's appropriate? Are you walking the extra mile? Are you praying for that person who has done you wrong? Are you like God allowing whatever blessings that he has given you to share with others to fall on the just and the unjust? Are you being selective based on your record keeping and only including those in your in crowd who are equally repaying you good for good? Maybe you're like the story of the tenant farmer, right? There's a a certain tenant farmer that had worked for many years 
uh, to improve the, the production and the quality of the land that he was managing. And, and he was trying to do good to, to bless this landlord and to make this land profitable and productive. And, and so it was a surprise to him when his lease was coming due for renewal that the landowner came and said, hey, my son is about to be married and I'd like to gift this land to my son as a wedding present. Well, how about if I equal the offer and I, I, I buy it from you because I've invested so much time and energy in preparing it and I would love to, to own it and take it over and I could make you a good price. And no, no, I, I really want to keep it in the family and give it to, as a gift to my son. And so as, as the weeks went by, as the wedding was approaching, that root of bitterness began to sink into his heart and he thought, oh, how unfair. All this time and effort I've given, I've put in so many hours of sweat and labor into this guy's land and he's just going to take it out from under my feet. So what does he do? The week before the wedding, he goes out and he gets all the most noxious, poisonous, worst seeds of weeds that he can think of, and he sows them into the soil, and he takes all of these rocks, and he buries them so that the land is going to just be awful, and on the night before the wedding, the landlord comes, and what does he say? I hate to tell you, but the wedding's off. I'd really love to take you up on that offer to purchase the land. Oops. (laughs) When we allow the root of bitterness to take hold in our lives. And we lash out because we think we're going to give better than we've gotten. What we're doing is we're sowing a whole seed, a field of seeds of problems for ourselves that are going to continually come back to bite us. See, Jesus, as he goes to the cross, knows that he's about to be exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom every knee will eventually bow and every tongue confess that he has the supreme identity. And yet in this moment, he bites his tongue, he holds his mouth, and he takes whatever they want to give. Jesus wants you to know this morning that when you encounter injustice and when you get a raw deal in your life, he is with you and he knows what it feels like. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be unjustly treated and he understands the humiliation of getting a raw deal at the hands of evil people. But the reality is that every false accusation, every slander, every ill word spoken about me in my life in this world becomes an opportunity for me to become more like Jesus. You see, the key to responding to attacks and insults as Christ would is to nurture God's love for us in our own hearts because it's not about what you think about me. It's not about what the world thinks about me. It's all about what God thinks about me. And whether I trust that God's judgment on me is accurate and true. Because God's judgment revealed in Christ is that I am loved and I am forgiven. And there is nothing that anyone can do to touch that. No matter how poorly they treat me. How about you this morning? Do you understand God's love for you? Helps you to not have to suffer in a way that prevents you from experiencing God's joy in your life, having to lash out at others to somehow get even or get your comeuppance. You see, God not only cares about justice in the world, but he's willing to do something about it. 
God isn't asking us to stand as spiritual doormats and and not do anything in response to injustice. What he's asking us to do is to understand that the proactive way that you deal with injustice and evil in this world is you overcome evil with good. You love your enemies, and in so doing, you are children of your Father in heaven, and we overcome the darkness of evil in this world. It's not easy. It's not fun. But in the end, there's joy that comes in the morning. It's the way to experience God's joy in your life by choosing to do the right thing. See, the rule of God comes in each one of our lives when we act and respond in the love and grace that Jesus showed his own enemies in the face of the world's hate and injustice and the mistreatment that we experience. When we hold on to our faith, we become a part of the victory that Jesus accomplished on the cross because the kingdom of God is reigning in the world in our hearts. And we become part of making the kingdom of God a reality just like Jesus did when we act and respond in love. So in quick review, what do we do? We love our enemies. It's the hardest thing we have to do. But as it said in the video, that's the job. That's the job, to love our enemies. Don't return evil for evil, return good for evil. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless them and don't curse them. And trust in God to vindicate you and in Jesus to see you through. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. See, we can believe and know that God will help us in our time of need. The question is whether in the midst of life's most challenging circumstances, we will run to God or will we use it as an excuse to run away from God? Because God promises that if we put our trust in Jesus, if we put our hearts in him, he will redeem our suffering. He will overcome our fears. He will heal our brokenness. He will bring life out of death for you and for me. Even in the midst of the darkest places in our lives, we can look to Jesus because he is our hope rising. Would you pray with me? God, it's not easy to live in an unfair and an unjust world. It's hard to process and deal with the pain and the suffering that we experience and our emotions when people treat us poorly and unfairly. We need your help and we need your grace to transform us from the inside out. Give us the courage and the strength to choose the right thing, even when everything in us is telling us to choose vengeance and anger and bitterness in our lives. God, free us from ourselves and give us the courage to trust that if you see us through these painful, difficult circumstances, that joy comes as a result of following you and choosing your path for our lives. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.